0: Monday through Friday, noon, live at Facebook and on YouTube and all of our affiliates. Mark Hayden is with me. He is a a scholar with the FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education. He's also uh, a self-described amateur historian specializing in Roman history. He's got a new book published available at Amazon.com, Gaius Marius, The Rise and Fall of Rome's Savior, and he has several interesting articles posted up on the FEE uh, news uh, site um, that uh, get into uh, Roman history with interesting parallels to today's politics. Mark, thanks for joining me this afternoon.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on.
0: Well, Mark, first of all, I want you to talk a little bit, if you will, about FEE and their work, if you don't mind.
1: Well, the Foundation for Economic Education, uh, I'm close friends with them, and they try to educate people on – on the beauties of, of free market economics and how perhaps the answers to many of the problems that plague uh, modern America and the modern world may not be a government answer, but actually an answer that can be found via private enterprise. So they try to inspire uh, youngsters and educate people on what uh, fee actually does.
0: Now, Mark, are you yourself an economist? Is that your background?
1: I am not an economist. My background is actually in philosophy, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, kind of for somehow dovetailed into me finding uh, enjoyment in politics as well as ancient Rome. And, you know, I work for the R Street Institute now, which is a free market uh, think tank based in D.C., and I run the southeastern United States.
0: Excellent. And uh, your interest in Rome has drawn study in Roman politics and some of the parallels of that politics to some of the perils that our republic faces today. And uh, an article that you have here that I found particularly interesting, Nation Building Doesn't Work, Just Ask Rome, where you get into an issue where Rome tried to build a nation as a buffer against their Carthaginian enemies, and the whole thing backfired. And I think that has parallels today, obviously, in that um, President Reagan helped uh, the Mujahideen, Drive out the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, which is great, but that gave birth, or at least it helped encourage, the development of the Taliban government there. So there can be unforeseen consequences when a nation meddles into a foreign nation's affairs so directly that they engage in nation building. Can you comment on the Roman situation that you illustrate and bring that to a comparison to politics today?
1: Sure. So ancient Rome, I mean, they, they were uh, they weren't novices to nation building, but their experiments ended about as well as the, the modern experiments do. Uh, they, but every single example that I can find of actual nation building, not relying on client states, which that's a little bit of a different scenario, but actual nation building, the Romans failed miserably. And they almost always came in and conquered the nation state after they rebelled against, Um, essentially their rule from afar. Mm -hmm. So in Numidia, what happened there is the Romans were in this life-or-death struggle in their fight against Hannibal and the Carthaginians, and they Mm -hmm. were desperate for allies. So they found this Numidian uh, chieftain. They said, essentially, we're going to give you your own kingdom. It's going to be big. It's going to be full of uh, riches, and you can do whatever you want, but you have to be our ally and help us defeat Carthage, and they did that. Uh, and then they they expanded into this this large Carthaginian or excuse me a large Numidian uh, country, and they were good allies for a long time. But eventually, uh, the Romans reinterjected themselves into Numidia and said, "We want you to name this man named Jugurtha as your new king whenever uh, the current king dies." And they did that and Jugurtha was trained in Roman warfare, and they thought he was a great ally. Well, immediately he turned around and he killed all of his co-heirs. He killed a host of Italians that were in Numidia and rebelled against the Romans. So the Romans had to openly uh, declare war against Numidia, and it was a long, drawn-out conflict in which Jugurtha embarrassed the Romans until finally my guy, Gaius Marius, came down there and and righted the ship, but not after tens of thousands I mean, by some estimates, over 100,000 people had died in the conflict. It was terrible. Mm -hmm. But one of the interesting consequences of that nation building is it started a domino effect that actually led to the fall of the Roman Republic. Because it gave rise to men like Marius and Sulla, who, who most people haven't heard of, and I understand that. But their heirs were Julius Caesar and Pompey and Crassus who formed the first triumvirate and ultimately led to the downfall of the Roman Republic and the rise of the Roman Empire.
0: And I suppose one of the lessons there is that when you have a situation where a nation is so embroiled in a foreign escapade, um, and, and that it backfires, the result is that the nation itself, in order to deal with the ensuing crisis, Becomes more authoritarian. It becomes more centralized. And um, in the case of Rome, that resulted in the fall, of the, distru- the eventual disintegration of the Republic, even though it kept vestiges like the Senate and it kept certain things. But it nevertheless led to the dictatorship of Octavian, who became Augustus. And then you had the succession of emperors who became <coughs> viewed as almost like God men on earth, you know, super powerful. Dictators. Um, And um, I I guess that, um, and yet at the same time, there have been successful nation building um, in modern times. I'd point specifically to post World War II Germany and Japan. So um, I would also point to the late 1940s Marshall Plan, which helped uh, stave off a communist takeover of Europe. By developing these very powerful trade relations with Western European countries, not that that was so an absolute direct nation building, but it did definitely help buttress these more Western oriented um, democracies.
1: Sure, and you're going to find instances of nation building that weren't absolute disasters, but the only way that it's going to work in the long term is if the common people actually have buy into this. They want to be a part of this new experiment. They enjoy the rights and liberties that are given to them naturally. Uh, but with, with Numidia, uh, it wasn't like that. In fact, there were two competing chieftains, and the Romans chose one over the other and told the One Chieftain and you can go conquer all of this guy 's people if you would like, and we 've got your back if you want to do this. So the people, they didn't really enjoy the rights and liberties. They didn't really buy into this necessarily, especially when they saw Jugurtha killing off his co-heirs and taxing his people. It was very burdensome. He, he enriched himself with, with many talents of silver and gold, and he stripped that from his people. So they didn't have the necessary buy-in that perhaps you know, modern Germany and Japan did in uh, the long-term uh, reconstruction process.
0: Right, and also it seems to me that Namibia was an artificial state. It was cre- literally created by the Romans uh, in the same way that maybe um, Iraq is an artificial state created in the post World War One period by the British and the French. Or we could even go more modern and, and look at Somalia, where you know you literally have uh, people with various interests little d- establishing a a, a state. It, it didn't have an organic development itself, where you had people who shared a common culture and a common language, and you know they, they, they emerged from, from joint experience over time. And that uh, the reason the Romans built Namibia was simply as an expediatory. They wanted to defeat to Carthage, and they wanted to have a client state that would keep an eye on Carthage to make sure it didn't uh, kick up again. And uh so that's that's the difference I think there. Whereas obviously Germany and Japan they already existed. I mean there wasn't they weren't created. They were simply uh promoted um you know with with the emoluments of the free market from the United States.
1: Yeah, and there's there's also another aspect of uh, the Roman experiment in Numidia that I didn't really touch on in uh my article is that Part of what they wanted to use Numidia as, is, is, and you've, you've uh, touched on this, is as a buffer state. Not just from Carthage, but there were these uh, sub-Saharan peoples, these nomads. There were also the Gaitulians uh, and these different groups that could possibly wage war on Rome, but Rome didn't want to have that headache. So they thought if they placed a country in between them, that they would incur the brunt of all these these raids, these battles, and thankfully, you know we can make this a Numidian problem instead of a Roman problem. So they they kind of abused the relationship with the Numidians in that respect.
0: You also wrote an interesting article as well on the FEE website, The Slow Motion Financial Suicide of the Roman Empire, where you show many examples of how Rome was becoming or had become or had experimented in direct economic intervention, and and welfareism, um, in terms of uh, the dole, you know, the famous uh, the grain dole in Rome itself and in major Roman cities, and and also the the tampering with interest rates. Um, I don't know. Did they have a central banking system, and what was the actual banking system of ancient Rome? Who actually created the currency?
1: Yeah, that's kind of a complex uh, issue, and there's a lot of questions about how that actually operates. So as far as we know, there were different mints around the empire, whether it was in Gaul or it was in, in Italy or, or wherever. There were many different ones, but they were all imperial mints. So it was controlled by the imperial government in the later Roman times. We're talking about when the empire rose. Um, and it appears that they essentially minted money whenever they needed it. So that mm-hmm. meant that many times they flooded the market uh, far, with far too much money and the results were, were economic disasters. Uh, but one of the major problems that i found with that is they had no real policy, long term at least, on um, keeping inflation rates down. What they would do is as they started to run out of money because their minds were spent and they were spending more money defending their empire because they, they usually had three hundred to 600,000 standing troops at any given time at the height of the empire, which is massive, even by today's standards. That was the, their most expensive, uh, expensive expenditure. Uh, and the second most was the grain dole, the, their subsidized food program. So to pay for all this, what they would do is they would gradually debase their money and make it lighter. And each time they did that, they hoped they hoped that people wouldn't notice. But market forces always figured it out. And at first, it would always correct. It would correct every time that they debased their money and they put less silver in it. But eventually, the money became so useless that it caused depressions uh, that lasted centuries. And we're talking over a 100 years of these economic problems. And eventually it got so bad that the Roman army refused to be paid in the denarius, which was useless. They wanted to be, be paid in kind with food and land. And even the Roman government stopped in certain areas, stopped receiving their own money in taxation because they knew it was useless. But still they minted more of it. And in some places to try to deal with this, they created what's known as ghost currencies. They made up this this form of currency that uh, was invisible. There was nothing there, but they used it to determine how much things cost. Because they didn't know how much a pig cost in the denarius, which is the link coin in ancient Rome, since it was useless. So Mm -hmm. they would make up these different currencies so they could have an accurate description of things worth.
0: And how did those – was it like like a cryptocurrency? Is it like Bitcoin? I mean, did they have like some kind of a, um, a tangible manifestation of it, or was it more of an abstract idea?
1: You know, and I'm not entirely sure because this was uh, in Corners of the Empire, and it's, we're relying on the ancient writers to describe this. And as far as I know, they didn't do a very good job describing it. So it, no, may, have been, it may have been this piece of land is worth 10 pigs. Uh, or this something
0: been like a local, like, like during the early, early year of the, of the depression in this country, you had local communities and even some states like Utah actually create currencies because there wasn't enough money. Mm-hmm. I mean, the depression was because there, there was such a contraction in the currency that there was no money around. I mean, they had to do something to create a means of exchange and they literally started creating local currencies that had questionable. Uh, backing um but the um the Roman currency then would be directly controlled at least to varying levels by the state it was or by the empire who would decide how to issue currency now if they were if they were devaluing the denarius and issuing more coin, why wouldn't that have the effect of stimulating? an economy and furthering economic development as a way to absorb the inflationary aspect.
1: Well, I mean, so it was based on the precious metal and there was, less precious metal. And I, the Romans, early at Romans, as far as we know, didn't understand, you know, some of these abstract uh, um, uh, theories of economics. They didn't understand monetary policy very well, as we can tell by their experiments. But as they understood that what was worth anything in their money was the actual silver. They didn't care if it was in coin or if it was bullion. They didn't care because it was silver. That's what was worth money to them, essentially. So when there was less uh, value in those coins uh, it became worthless at that point and they tried to raise prices to um, uh, make it work with with what was what uh, the amount of silver that was in these coins so that's why it didn't work and they were it was very difficult for them to absorb it but part of the problem about them not being able to absorb it very well is that they constantly were debasing it uh, in 370 years, it went from 98 percent silver down to 0.4 percent silver. It was so it had been debased so much that you could rub your finger on a coin and the silver would rub right off. Uh, that's how worthless it became. So it's hard for the economy and and the market to uh, uh, correct to these problems when every year you're debasing it more and more.
0: I mean, I suppose there are similarities to the American dollar, which um has been, it's a fiat currency, basically. It's not backed by gold. And it's uh, its issued as a loan from the Federal Reserve to the federal government as part of the way it's issued. And that over the, since, probably since the 1930s, particularly, there has, it's been inflated to the point where a gold coin today would be worth, you know, the same, but it's worth like 300 times in terms of dollars, Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's not necessarily a bad thing because to put more currency in the economy allows for more investment, more consumer, more consumption, more development across the board and more diversity in economic activity. I mean, the problem maybe with Rome is that they didn't keep up with that they, they, because of their kind of top down authoritarian system.
1: Yeah, well, it was also that the even though there was more money, more uh, physical money to invest, it just had less value. So, you know, if you want to build a, a grand temple, well, it may cost uh, you, uh, or it may be many more denarii to build that uh, as it did before. So, there was much less value, even though they were pumping out a lot more coins. So, they kind of changed the whole value of the of the system. That's why it didn't work, and it was essentially. Um, on the brink, uh, brink of being abandoned, their monetary system, uh, just before Diocletian took over.
0: And also the Romans, besides investing in, as you say, welfare programs like the grain dole, which were available to all Romans, rich and poor, they also were big builders. I mean, they invested in these magnificent major public works projects. I mean, I'll, I'll, for an example, in, in today in France, which was, of course, Gaul, there's, in Arles, in southern France, there's this Colosseum that is used as a concert venue. It's fantastic. The acoustics are brilliant. I mean, it's amazing. And, I mean, it must have cost the Romans a fortune to build that thing. I mean, the Colosseum itself, if you take a look at Rome and the, the Forum and the Parthéon, these were huge expenditures. Uh, there's, there's a port city in Libya, apparently, that's been completely abandoned and it's complete ruins. But it's massive, and it has huge ruins of, with docks and buildings and uh, incredible Roman artifacts. So were these investments good for Rome? I mean, did they – or did they bankrupt Rome?
1: You know, I mean, I think they bankrupted Rome. So they their taxing, taxation policy was, was kind of weird until the point of Diocletian. They just kind of raised taxes and, and, and saved money in their treasury – Um, without any real regard to what they were spending. They weren't very good at that, uh, unfortunately. But with the Colosseum in Rome, Vespasian was the one that began uh, the construction of that after he and his son Titus had essentially stamped out the Jewish revolt in Israel. So they built it um, by essentially stripping Israel of its riches, and then they imposed a Jewish tax. So if you were Jewish, you had to pay an extra poll tax, to essentially pay for this grand coliseum so it's essentially one of the most anti-Semitic buildings that you can probably find that's still in existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite that, you know, I was there last August. It's it's awe-inspiring, and you can see many of these other buildings, um, the Circus Maximus, which now is little more than a little track that you can run on, but it used to be a stadium that held upwards of 150,000 Romans at any given time our stadiums now, for the most part, pale in comparison to that. Uh, well, so was there any sort of economic development because of that? Perhaps, but most of it was was paid for uh, out of the imperial purse. Uh, so it was paid for with tax money. I mean, if it, it had been privatized, perhaps there would probably be a little bit more economic development than the government paying for it all.
0: Right, and also in Rome, the Ark of Titus, which has a very famous bas release showing the, uh, the Jewish captives and the, 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 the menorah being dragged through the streets of Rome. Uh, I believe it's, it's blocked off because the rabbis at that time said that anyone, any Jewish person who crossed underneath that ark would be struck dead. And so I don't think anyone to this day can cross through it. It's, you can see that they, they put a wall up to, to, to avoid anyone entering it. But um so they 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 in a sense built a lot of their their great assets from plundering nations. In a way, it's very similar to the way, you know, well, the Nazis worked. I mean, the National Socialism when they would go into a country, whether it be like the Czech Czechoslovakia or Poland, they would loot the bank and they take out all the gold. They would move factories, and they 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 were able to um, create the illusion of wealth and for and. and Move kind of the needle along by this means, I mean, I suppose the Soviet Union did the same thing, but eventually they ran out i mean there's all there's just so many banks that you can loot. eventually, you have to create something, and that's where the American system is is very different in that you know it's based upon actual capital creation at its source, which is with businesses and individuals and ideas turned into a monetization. It's not based on looting.
1: Yeah, and you're absolutely right in many respects. And If you look at ancient Rome, it had an upward trajectory for a very long time, whether it was the Republic or it was um, in the Empire, because they were constantly expanding, and that meant that they were stripping the provinces and the peoples that they destroyed. They were stripping them of their wealth pretty consistently, um, especially if it was a, a war that was long, and it really angered them because they would want to go in and teach them a punitive lesson. Uh, But when Hadrian decided to stop Rome's expansion, you know, he built the the famous Hadrian's Wall that you can still go visit in Scotland. And he had fortresses also on the the banks uh, or the the edges of the empire because he said, enough, we're not going to expand anymore. But that also marked, in my opinion, a kind of turning point in the empire. They didn't have the wealth coming in anymore from these conquests for the most part. So they had a difficult time uh, essentially paying for the grain dole, paying for the troops that they had. They had a lot of expenses. It was massive. And without that, that extra stimulus that they were getting from conquering other peoples, it just didn't work out very well.
0: Yeah, the whole thing started a gradual implosion. And Hadrian, I suppose they say, was the emperor who was really there at the very pinnacle of Roman power. But at the same time, it was also, as you point out, the turning point. And that, um, you know, they they ran out of nations to plunder. And they didn't, they could have at that time, I mean, as far as you could look at history, they could have turned to other means, like uh, like trade with Arabia, trade with the East. I mean, they, they they could have developed certain methodologies that would have sustained the empire, but they didn't seem to really do that. Instead, they began to go inward and they sort of, you know looked within rather than then kind of integrate as a trading partner with with other nations in the world
1: they did have uh, some considerable trading with with lots of other nations but the problem that they that they had was transportation so mm-hmm. for every mile you transported something that you had the price of it rose um not incrementally but exponentially so it became so expensive that it just wasn't worth it uh you know trade over water was, was uh, far cheaper but it was much more dangerous i mean uh, sailors it was a very scary time to be a sailor the triremes and the different boats that they had at the time frequently sank like Mm -hmm. if you look at um at the um uh, pantheon right now that that was built the last one was built by hadrian you notice that the pillars on it look shorter by 10 feet than they ought to be it's still a beautiful building but it looks like something is off and they believe that the reason for that is when they were transporting the pillars in the boat sank but hadrian Hadrian was not a patient guy and he wanted his Pantheon to be built as quickly as possible. So he made a compromise and brought in uh, pillars that were 10 feet too short to finish the project.
0: Oh, that's it. That's amazing. So it was sort of like a, a money saving venture, but um, Rome at the same time built such incredible infrastructure. I mean, the Roman roads are better than any roads built to, today and their aqueducts and, and other methodologies of transporting people and water. I mean, it, in a way it sort of tied the whole nation together in the same way that perhaps our public infrastructure, like like the um, the interstate highway project of the 1950s has done in this country, you know, or the system of canals in the in the 19th century uh, did. And even the system of railroads is launched by Abraham Lincoln, the transcontinental railroad system. I mean, these things tended to make it easier to get from point A to point B and that, that, strengthen the nation i guess the parallel today would be the development of cyber technologies and the internet
1: yeah and i have discussions uh in the past with um uh, the president of our street because we have a disagreement over who was better the ancient romans or, or, or medieval times Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm going to strenuously disagree with them because I'm very partial to the Romans. But I believe when it comes to that sort of administrative ability uh, and a lot of the infrastructure that they had, that was not met until perhaps the Renaissance, maybe later. The road network was amazing, but it was standardized. Everywhere you went, the Roman roads were the same width. They looked the same. They had mile markers every mile so they knew how far they had traveled. Uh, and and they, upke- they kept up with these roads with all the upkeep that they had to do. It was rather amazing. But then if you look at the aqueducts, they would ship water in from many, many miles away. But the fascinating thing about it is they measured the grade of the, uh, the, of the decline of these aqueducts down to uh, fractions of an inch over miles so that gravity would ship in all of that water. They didn't have pumps back then. They did it all naturally. And meanwhile, they did it with these aqueducts that are still standing today and in many places, especially in southern France, are absolutely gorgeous.
0: Oh, they, they were incredible engineers. I mean, they were – and they, they borrowed a lot of shipbuilding in, uh, information from the Greeks as well who built these amazing ships and probably from, the, from Carthage, which was also a great shipbuilding empire. Now, the, the Romans also had a very strange way of collecting taxes, and I think that was continued by the Ottoman Turks who fashioned themselves and, – and by the Eastern Empire – who fashioned themselves as the inheritors of the Roman system and in many ways did. And that is that they would subcontract it out to private tax collectors who were usually the heads of these very successful, wealthy local families. And they would then collect, they would, they'd kick Rome up the, um, the main amounts and they'd keep whatever else they could get. And um, it's a system that continued right up until, you know, the fall of the Ottoman Turkey in, in World War One. Yeah, so there was
1: uh, during Rome, because Rome's lifespan was over a thousand years. So there were, there were different forms of taxation that they employed. So in the beginning, uh, the Roman Empire, excuse me, the, the Roman Republic, it was essentially just a wealth tax. Everyone paid about 1% of their wealth to the purse and it went to the treasury. And if they uh, were at war, they might raise it up to 3%. But eventually they started to conquer these provinces And, you know, the the Italians were saying, well, if we're so successful at conquering, why should we pay taxes? So the Italians no longer had to pay taxes, but the Italians were given the power. This is what you were talking about, to uh, bid on contracts to become tax farmers. And that's what they were called. And so taxation at that period of time in the late republic was they would say, well, from this whole community in in northern Gaul or a whole community, wherever, uh, we want to collect X amount of silver. And so you can bid on this contract to collect all of it. You can get it from whomever you want there. It doesn't matter. And you get to keep all the excess that you you get. And this sort of predatory taxation policy obviously was terrible. And it it drove many people uh, essentially to slavery. They were taxed so much that some people had to sell their own bodies literally into slavery so that they wouldn't go to debtor's prison or or go to the mines where they would uh, leave them in slavery for so long. Mm-hmm. But, in time, Augustus realized that the tax farming uh industry was was pretty corrupt, so we replaced the system with another wealth tax and a poll tax on individuals and then it slowly evolved into a different system after that uh, where they they essentially took up a lot of goods and just redistributed it to the uh, to the army at that point well,
0: how did the tax called farmers, as you call, as the Romans called them, how did they derive their ability literally to ask people to pay taxes? I mean, did they have like a quasi-militia behind them? I mean, you know, you can't just knock on someone's door and say, give me some money.
1: Well, when you have the uh, the government at your back, the, it, they can be very persuasive, and that's what they did. I mean, they were – Let's assume that our IRS were all contractors, and that's exactly what you would have. Sure, yeah, they, they can knock on the door and, and say, give us your money. You can say no, but they have the power of the government behind them so they can enforce their will uh, if they'd like.
0: I wonder if the IRS actually maybe operates like that. I don't know. They, <laughs> don't give, somebody do a, they give somebody a little cut if they go after a big a big bounty. But, um, you, you know, the problem is that it had a corrupting element and, um, you, you know, it, it, was, it was not, and the Romans were very much, it seems to me, obsessed with the issue of law and order in, in their, their nation. They tolerated different religions and different local cultures and even local autonomy as long as they were, you know, lawful and loyal to, to the Roman Republic or the Roman Empire, the, the, you know, the Pax Romana. So um, th- there was a reasonable amount of local autonomy. But, I mean, given in his great series, The Fall of the Roman Empire, am I, am I correct to say that his theory of why Rome eventually fell was because they began to, when they ran out of money and they was, were you know, losing their, their str- hold on their massive military, they started to allow uh, foreigners to settle inside the Roman border and try it with the idea that they would turn them into client states and did in some cases, like the Burgundians. But in other cases, these client states, like the Franks or the, or the Visigoths, they eventually started to, um, you know, feed off of the republic itself and create and, and, and turn on the republic. Maybe this is an example of, a, of a, an experiment in, uh, in, in failed states or, or the state creation. Do you think that that, that that's um, really one of the major, if not the major, cause of the fall of the Roman Empire?
1: I don't. Um, I am no fan of Gibbon. Uh, I respect a lot of the work that he did in his research. Um, he pinpointed, of course, he talked about the, the Germanic tribes uh, and the other ones, uh, that were involved in, in rome's fall but he also pinpointed christianity as as kind of a change within the psyche of the romans that made them not really want to have an empire anymore mm-hmm. and i just don't buy into their his arguments and i think history shows otherwise so when rome was was going through all these these problems with their monetary policies and they were starting to have all these barbarian incursions they started to look around for allies and there were some germanic tribes that said hey If you give us some free land, we'll become tax-paying citizens, and we'll serve in your army. And by that uh, action alone, I mean, Constantine was involved in this and many others. By that act alone, they were able to extend the empire's lifespan for hundreds of years. And it turned out that these Germanic uh, tribes, they became just as Roman as the Italian Romans. They became pagan. They loved their country. Many of them rose up almost to the to the level of being um, Emperor, many of them were actually caretakers for the emperor, uh, and many of the Germans were were actually the praetorian guard, the bodyguards, you know the secret service of their time so it worked for a long time, but eventually, yes, there were some Germanic tribes that uh, invaded Rome and led to its demise. But some of that Rome kind of brought on itself. you mentioned the the goths mm-hmm. well the Goths asked to move into Rome, uh, get free land, and they would serve as, as their, their army. Well, Rome said, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll do this. But then they refused to let them settle. They held them essentially in concentration camps and refused to feed them. So, of course, eventually the Goths said, well, we're not going to have this anymore, and they rebelled. Uh, but it, still, the Romans had a chance to settle the matters and defeat them. But they refused to work with the Eastern uh, Empire, and they tried to fight them independently to their own demise. And even after that, still the Goths were saying, we'll be friends with you, but I want, Alaric wanted to be the head general. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, nope, we're not going to have that. So he, he uh, challenged Rome again and sacked Rome. So that was really a problem that Rome brought on themselves through uh, their lack of foresight and also um, um, kind of ego, which is what drove them to try to defeat the Goths independently of the Eastern Empire.
0: And, of course, Christianity spread peacefully mostly through Rome, starting in starting in the time of Tiberius and right up till, uh, and mostly actually by women, um, until they reached the point where one day uh, Constantine woke up and he realized that the empire had virtually gone Christian, in which he threw in the towel and he said, okay, we're Christians. And then he be- was baptized at the very end of his life um, but yet, as you say, given and conventional Latin today, if you study like high school Latin and classes that talk about, um, ancient, you know, antiquities, their conventional view is that it was Christianity that led to the demise of the Roman Empire. And I suppose they pin that to simply the timetable in that, um, after, you know, Constantine divided it into two pieces. Because he found it ungovernable, which had previously been done by by Diocletian, Mm -hmm. and that um, from there you had the collapse of the Western Empire. Um, Do you think there's any validity to that? Because it seems to me that that's not the case. I think Christianity only enhanced not only Rome, but it made Rome continue on throughout Europe. You have the whole the um, you know the Roman Catholic Church is the inheritor in a sense. The Pontiff, the uh, the Pope. That's an office that had been in existence continuously since the Roman kingdom, even before the Republic. It's the longest held office in the history of the world. So I don't think that that's quite accurate, but what do you think?
1: No. And and so the the fall of the Roman empire, not the Roman Republic, the Roman empire was really just, um, they fell to a thousand cuts. You know, it's the ship that sprang a thousand holes. They had all these issues. Uh, They had poor management. The emperors in the later empire were not very good. Uh, to be quite honest, so that that poor management uh, hurt Rome. But then, you know, uh, they also had the problem of of bringing in money because the empire became more and more expensive to maintain. But they didn't have the tax base uh, to be able to fund all that, so they had to cut corners. And then the third, uh, the next problem that they had was that the barbarian tribes across the border used to be individual tribes that they could go beat up on pretty easily. But by that period, they had started to unite and their numbers were growing very quickly to where they outnumbered Rome. And also, Rome didn't train their army really very well at this point in time. In the Roman Republic, they were very strict on their standards, their discipline. By the later empire, they didn't do any of that. So all of those issues combined essentially led to Rome's collapse. And, you know, when you look at these historically you know, it's kind of a surprise that they lasted as long as they did because the last 150 years, they were not on, on a stable footing.
0: Right. I mean, there's a great scene, a visual scene of um, one day the um, the Rhine River froze over and the Franks suddenly woke up and they said, oh, we could walk on this. And they said, yee, and they, they ran across like tens of thousands of them started storming into France. Um, but yet at the same time, the Eastern Empire did continue for I believe another at least half of, half a millennia, uh, right up till the you know the decades before Christopher Columbus, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I read somewhere, and I don't know if you, you know, I don't know if you're up on this part of history, but that um, Charlemagne, who was crowned emperor by the Pope, he went, he entered into a secret negotiation with Constantinople to reunite the Roman Empire. Nothing came of it, and it was subversive because it would have been against the Catholic Church. Do you know anything about that?
1: No, I don't, uh, and I've never heard that before. I'm not saying that it hasn't happened. You're, you're getting in the years outside of my expertise, but what I can tell you is that something fishy happened with Charlemagne becoming emperor and the pope becoming pope. It appears that they both agreed to scratch each other's back. Right. One person wanted to be pope, and then there was this really powerful Frankish king uh, named Charlemagne. They said, "Well, if you can help me become pope, I can help you become emperor." So there was this backroom deal that we that most historians think happened, and, and that's what resulted in this this new coronation of this this new Roman emperor, if you will.
0: And also, Charlemagne, after I think his grandson became the first emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, which at that time extended through all of what is is modern Germany as well as northern Italy. Um, And that, of course, had made claims to being the inheritor of the Roman Empire, and that existed right up to the time of Napoleon.
1: Yeah, and it's uh, I, they did kind of present themselves that way, but they never regained the splendor of of old Rome. You know, I'm uh, not to no pun intended, but there's this romantic view of Rome, and the Holy Roman Empire just never approached that. They didn't have the military might, they didn't have the administrative abilities, they didn't have the, the building uh, capabilities, mm-hmm. uh, and they just never really could eclipse that. But they, I'll give them credit for trying.
0: Well, as they said, I mean, the, the old saying goes. They were no, they were not holy. They were not Roman, nor were they an empire, <laughs> um, right? But but uh, the the tradition continued in that when the uh, the Turkish Ottoman Sultan sacked Constantinople, he expected to be crowned Roman emperor, and that didn't happen because the Romans did not the uh, Eastern Church refused. But they put on pretensions to carry on the Roman tradition, and in fact. The Ottomans really existed in much of the Eastern Empire uh, right up till World War One, I. But I, I would think that ultimately the real Rome, if, if, you know, if we look at it abstractly, not literally, um, actually is the United States um, in that um, from the Republican model. I mean, if you look at Washington, D.C., it's very Roman. You know, the... Uh, the early founders of the American Republic, they they, they had very good knowledge of Roman law. Um, here in Massachusetts, where I am in Boston, you had um, one of the first real philosophers of the American idea, that being Otis. He would walk around in a toga and in a tunic. I mean, he really said, we're going to be the new Rome and we're going to have a republic. And so I think that it's safe to say that um, in many ways, the American Republic has revived and continued some of the great traditions of the Roman Republic pre-Empire. The question is, are we going to go to the Empire model?
1: Yeah. And I, so I actually gave a presentation on this at the Georgia Tea Party recently, talking about parallels between the American and Roman Republics. And, you know, there's something about Rome that people want to recapture. I mean, even in World War II, Mussolini was fashioning himself as kind of a new Roman emperor, uh, and that, that Italy was going to regain that splendor. And Hitler in in Germany was talking about building a a Third Reich that'll last a thousand years, just like Rome did. Thankfully, none of that uh, came to fruition. Uh, But modern America, yes. So we were actually, our constitution is based directly on the Roman constitution. The, ancient Rome had these checks and balances, separation of power, they had an executive branch, they had a Senate, and they had what was kind of their version of the House of Representatives, but it was, it was kind of a, a combination between that and the Electoral College. It was essentially the people voting, but they voted in blocks that resembled the Electoral College, and they elected all of their, their people, uh, their, their candidates, uh, and they also voted on laws rather than letting the Senate do it themselves. Uh, and we, we followed a lot of this these same um, um, forms that have been put in place, but there's there's other similarities which I just find fascinating. Like Rome, they threw off the the oppression of a foreign king um, when they got rid of uh, King Lucius uh, Tarquinius Superbus, uh, and then they, fought, they formed the form. Excuse me, the uh, Republic. And modern America, we did the same thing. We threw off the the oppression of of the British. Um, Kingdom that they had over the colonies and formed a republic, uh, and we've had kind of a similar trajectory, uh, and a lot of similar things have happened. What like one of the pivotal moments in the Roman Empire's history, or excuse me, Roman Republic's history, is when they were uh, fighting the world superpower. Uh, I liken that to World War II when we were fighting Germany, and they landed on the, the beaches, these enemy beaches, in an amphibious operation. Uh, mm-hmm. and it was unlikely to be to, to prevail, but they did. And they defeated Carthage. And to me, that sounds very much is that like. How,
0: is that how they defeated Carthage? They like landed on the beaches? They did. They did. And
1: then they invad- invaded and they, they fought uh, Hannibal. And to me, that sounds very much like the American experience in World War Two, landing yeah. in the Normandy and then invading uh, all the way to uh, to Germany. And then after that, Both America and Rome became the known superpowers in the old world. Now, there were still other big players. We had Russia, and, of course, there was still the Macedonian kingdom uh, that that, uh, Rome clashed with. But they were still one of, if not the preeminent uh, power in the Mediterranean world. But the problem is some of the the, the things that led to the fall of of the Roman Republic, uh, I believe that you can start seeing parallels to that in the American Republic, too.
0: And, and I think it's also to, to note that the, uh, the Romanovs took on Rome as their image. The word Tsar means Caesar. Mm-hmm. And that uh, the Nazis also, the salute, the straight-arm salute is Roman. That was how you'd salute the emperor and the, the armband. These are all Roman affectations. So they, they took in some of the visual, more you know, traditional elements of, of Rome, plus, of course, the Roman worship of the emperor as a god-king. Finds reflection in Heil Hitler. Sure. Um,
1: when you, you, know, when you uh, talk about fascists, fascism, that word comes from the fasces, which was a bundle of, of sticks with emblems on top that were carried around Roman leaders to announce their power. And if people misbehaved around them, they could be beaten with the fasces uh, as
0: well. And those very self same fasces are both v- prominently displayed in the US Senate. But, um, and you are <laughs> Thankfully, right? they're used that way. And you see, by the way, if you look at in Boston, I don't know about in other cities, but if, obviously Roman architecture is heavily, co- you know, copped in in Boston. You see columns everywhere, but you also see fasci. You see the uh, the, the bundles with the the wrapped in like a cord, and sometimes even the uh, the axe, not necessarily the axe, but it's very common to see that image at the entranceways or the gateways to some of these big, these big apartment buildings that were built in Boston in the mid-late 19th century and early 20th century. So these images, I mean, America definitely incorporated them. I don't think they put that same meaning to them. But there was an admiration for both Roman Republican ideas and I think even maybe subliminally of Roman imperial ideas.
1: Absolutely. And, and also, don't forget domes. Are, if you look at most state uh, houses across the U.S. and also the U.S. Capitol, they have these these giant domes. And you can trace a lot of that to the Roman experience. Uh, the, the Pantheon has that gorgeous dome with the hole in the top, the oculus, that lets in light, even lets in rain. Uh, I was there recently, and it's absolutely gorgeous. Incredible. Or the Hagia Sophia over in Constantinople uh, has that gorgeous big dome, although... They didn't, the Byzantians didn't do as well as, as my Romans because the dome kept collapsing in on itself. But thankfully, it it's stayed intact for a few hundred years this time. But there, there is this, this um, drive for, to reinvent the, the Roman experience uh, in the modern world. And I think many uh, republics, many, many empires have tried to compare themselves to Rome to try to regain some of that grandeur. Uh, thankfully for for many reasons i I'm not a huge fan of the empire just because it wasn't uh, a friend of liberty it wasn't a friend of taxation it wasn't a friend of many things um, and it was quite oppressive in, in many instances and I hope we never reached that level but there was uh, a beauty in my perspective to uh, aspects of the Roman Republic where there was more liberty, there was more upward mobility, uh, there was less of an oppressive government. Now that doesn't mean that it wasn't oppressive. I mean there were still many slaves, there were still many bad things that happened but um, I think if you want to link to anything, let's link to the Roman Republic over the Empire.
0: Oh absolutely and I also think that it's true to point out that the, the Empire still retained a significant portion of Republican form and I, th- I think they still thought of themselves as Republican and, and that the the Senate in, in Rome still had a lot of sway over the emperor and often would depose an emperor, often arrange for an emperor to be assassinated as well. So, I mean, they, they, they still were there as a somewhat of a balance of power, and I think that the Romans really developed that concept, both of a balance of power and also of the idea that laws supersede the whims of men. Um, in that they would have legal tablets displayed in Rome, and and lo- laws would be posted by being carved and etched into stones. They really admired the existence of laws almost as a separate entity from man. Now, I think that the the uh, the, the biblical the Jewish idea basically Im- improved on that. In that they said that laws and moral and ethical understandings, they come outside of human manipulation.
1: If you look at uh, the Roman <clears throat> Republic and when it, when it fell, um, essentially I, I think it fell because of a, a corruption of character, which you know Larry Reed from the Foundation of the Economic Education has talked about that extensively. But people stopped buying into the Constitution. They thought it was kind of a recommendation. You didn't have to follow it if you didn't want to by the end. But mm. then you had all these unscrupulous politicians that were willing to offer essentially bribes and welfare programs to voters so long as they voted for them. And once they were in office, they exploited the government and the people for their own well-being to try to uh, gain great prestige uh, or get rich or conquer a a foreign people. And this, I believe, is what what caused the chain of events that led to the fall of the republic. But when Augustus – well, before he was Augustus, he would have been Octavius at that time. When he rose to power and he tried to transfer – Uh, the Roman Republic into what we know as the empire, he did it in a way that he tried to hoodwink people. He said, no, you can keep all of your Republican forms. I'm not changing anything. The only thing I'm going to do is I'll have all control over the army. I'll essentially have veto power and I'll be the most important senator. Um, And that was how he kind of hoodwinked them into thinking that they still had their Republic. And for a while, some of those forms still worked, but gradually that power was eroded as, more and more emperors realized they had impunity to do whatever they want. And then by the time Diocletian took over, the empire, uh, the Principate is what it was called then, he essentially abolished that and created uh, the Dominate, which is an authoritarian government. In 301, he even issued the edict on maximum prices, and he said how expensive uh, all products could be, and you couldn't sell them for any higher than that which meant that a lot of people just didn't sell their goods because it could, wasn't um, um, prudent for them to sell it for under wages anymore. Mm. And at that point, that's when the Senate really – it had already lost much of his luster. It was just a group of really rich guys at that point, and they had little power. Occasionally they did try to assassinate people, but uh, their influence had waned considerably by that point.
0: And I think uh, Diocletian, if I'm not mistaken, he came very late in the game. In Rome, and he divided the empire into three pieces. And he reti- very unusual, I think, in Roman history is that he retired. He actually moved to Illyria, where he had a farm, and he spent the rest of his life in his garden. I mean, it's very you know kind of different than the usual path. But um, and he might have been the last real strongman. I mean, I suppose the literal last strongman was was Constantine, and he came, I think, about fifty sixty years after Diocletian.
1: He came pretty quickly afterwards. So Diocletian created what was known as the Tetrarchy, where there were four. There was two wow. emperors and two Caesars, essentially. And they divided the empire into fours. The, the emperors had the, the, you know, the, the main power. The Caesars had kind of subordinate power. And one of the, uh, the co-rulers uh, was Constantius, who was Constantine's father. Uh, but this was in a period where at some point someone tried to assassinate Diocletian. And it turned out the person he thought did it, maybe did, maybe didn't, was a Christian. So he started one of the worst purges of Christianity ever. But he didn't have enough power over the other co-rulers to really carry out this purge because Constantius, you know, he had a child with a Christian. So, I mean, he was partial to these Christians. So when he was ordered to go purge them, he wouldn't do it. He would just go knock over a couple walls at the local church and then say he was sorry afterwards. But still, Constantine was uh, essentially being raised by Diocletian for a long period of time until uh, later when when things started to erode in the Tetrarchy. Uh, But I will give uh, Diocletian credit on two points. One, he didn't want centralized power. He broke it up into fours. And two, he believed in term limits. And he he wanted every emperor to term limit themselves after, I believe, 20 years. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody did that. He was essentially him and were
0: And, and Cincinnati, of course, it was the great dictator who came in, did his job and went back to his farm. And that that had a lot of influence in the United States and that you had the Society of Cincinnati and Cincinnati. The city is named for him. And he was admired by Washington, who basically took that same model and emulated it by refusing to serve a third term. Um, Diocletian also was there at a time when Christianity had already become so entrenched that it was really too late to try to uproot it. Um, Mark, we're reaching toward the end of the program, so I want to talk a little bit, I want you to talk a bit about your book, which is Gaius Marius, The Rise and Fall of Rome's Savior, available at Amazon. Uh, and Amazon Kindle.
1: Yeah, it's uh, so it's the the most comprehensive book ever written, uh, biography, I should say, on Gaius Marius. So Gaius was known as the savior of Rome. He was a man that was born supposedly into meager circumstances, into a poor family, but he joined the legions and he was a very scrappy guy and he worked his way up until he finally reached enough uh, uh, understanding of the system and, and was, was uh, popular enough to where he could enter uh, Roman politics, where he, he strove to climb up the political ladder and people loved him because he was a maverick. He was a self-made maverick that didn't choose sides because there were the populares and the optimates. They were kind of like our Republicans and Democrats, but he wouldn't choose sides at first. He would try to work with both of them and sometimes he worked with one better than the other. And he would switch uh, sides because he wanted to do what was best for Rome. And eventually, you know, his his, uh, political uh, uh, career stalled, and he was called to war where he was a legate in Numidia. And there again, he proved how great of a Roman um, uh, commander he was, and he was able to gain the state's highest post, the consulship. And then he went back to Numidia and was able to conclude the war. But instead of being able to retire at that point... One of the greatest threats that ever faced the Roman Republic emerged, the Cimbri, this massive barbarian uh, people, threatened to invade Rome. Mm-hmm. And he ran up with his troops to defend Rome, and he was considered the, uh, one of the founders of Rome because by defeating the Cimbri, he ushered in new life within Rome. Well, after that, his, his, his career kind of uh, stalled a little bit. He was an older gentleman, so I mean, he could expect to just kind of live a quiet life as an elder son. But he, he crossed with um, some of the other politicians, and they exiled them from Rome. But the greatest man in, in Rome was actually exiled from the place that he that he helped save. But he eventually comes back and sparks what essentially was was a war, and sparked the what uh, caused the fall of the Roman Republic. Uh, so I, I'll ask your audience to, to check out Gaius Marius, the rise and fall of Rome's savior, and make up your own mind if he was a, a hero or whether he was an enemy of the Republic.
0: Very interesting book and certainly very nuanced in its look at this particular period. Um, Mark Hayden, I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. Um, Is there any other information you'd like to impart to our listening audience here?
1: No, no. I mean, I I appreciate them reading uh, some of my articles on the Foundation for Economic Education. I hope i continue to do so. I also write for uh, Ancient History, so they can check out my writings there, and of course, Uh, If they're interested in modern free market economics uh, and and political work, uh, go to rstreet.org. We do some fantastic work there, and I hope they'll check it out.
0: Excellent, Mark. Thanks so much for joining me. Talk to you soon.